Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Chris Dries and Marissa Di Natale. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Good morning. Well, this is a com- uh, a companion podcast. Uh, we, we've got two podcasts this week. Uh, uh, we uh, had a nice conversation with Mark Calabria, former director of the FHFA, the regulator of Fannie Freddie, talked about housing, mortgage finance, uh, housing policy. Uh, and uh, we'll, let's consider that a bonus episode. And we're going to have a bit of a conversation here, not quite as long as a typical podcast. And I think we're going to focus mostly on the housing market uh, in this conversation to kind of dovetail with what we talked about with uh, uh, with Mark. Um, uh, sound like a good game plan, guys? I didn't give you much warning yeah. on this. Yeah, sounds great. But you guys could talk about anything, couldn't you? I could bring up any topic, and we'd we'd be off and running. No, almost, almost. Yeah, I can yeah. make things up. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Is there any topic that, oh, well, I was going to ask, is there any topic we that's off limits? There's no topic off limits on inside economics, right? I don't think so. No, no. Yeah. We have, Just some topics right. are more informed than others, I guess. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There you go. Um, okay. Well, let's, uh, let's dive right in. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons why we picked housing was because we were talking with Mark. The other is we, we got some data. I saw existing home sales uh, came out for the month of January. And what I thought we'd do here is just to provide a little bit of a frame is talk about housing demand, that's home sales, new and existing, Uh, housing supply, that's housing starts and it could be manufactured housing, whatever we want to talk about, and then house prices. Uh, And now let's talk about demand and home sales. And we got Existing home sales for the month of January, 4 million homes uh, were transacted in the month of January, seasonally adjusted, obviously, annualized. Uh, That's pretty low, isn't it, Chris? By historical standards, it is low. It's uh, it's lower than uh, last year, last uh, a year ago, Mm -hmm. uh, like 1.7% below that uh, level. Uh, A little bit of a bump from December, though, so it's maybe hopefully moving in the right direction. I don't think so. I was looking at the time series. It's like right around four. It's been around 4 million for like over a year now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Bit, yeah. Yeah. I'm just uh, one data You're, point, yeah. right? Okay. Looking at December it. and it bumped up to 4 right. million. A recovery has to start somewhere. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, okay. yeah. So hope springs eternal. Um, I guess, I guess part of that hope is that uh, inventories also rose. Um, not a lot, but again, uh, you do see some additional inventory and all those sales are our demand. They're also the combination of demand and supply. So uh, you need to have more homes available to buy in order to see sales rising here. So so it's a little bit of a creep up in the positive direction, but, uh, but still uh, very low by historical standards. Yeah. My sense is if you kind of just put up a picture of home existing home sales, uh, you know, the whole historical uh, uh, time series. And you take a look at, you know, it goes up and it goes down and it goes all around. It feels like uh, cutting through the volatility, the underlying uh, sales level is about 5 million units per annum. If you got 5 million, it's, it's not a great year, but it's kind of a okay, typical year. So I, I think a good kind of rule of thumb is there are about a million units uh, home sales short of what would be typical. Does that sound about right? 
Yeah, it might actually be a little bit north of that, right? Yep. Historically. But uh yeah, that's I think if we were at five, everyone would be happy. <laughs> happy. Yeah. So what's going on? Why uh, you know, no recession, you know, there's no recession. Uh, unemployment's below four percent. People are making money. What's going on? Why, why, why four million? Why are we so low? Yeah. So I attribute it to both the lock in and the lock out effect, right? So the lock in ef- effect is due to the rates, right? We've talked about this in the past. It's just mm-hmm. given that uh, homeowners with a mortgage have locked in a, a super low rate um, by historical standards, much lower than today's 7% mortgage rate. Just no incentive, very costly decision if you're going to sell your house, move into another one, and take out another mortgage, right? So that uh, that's really a, a deterrent to uh, to selling homes, to moving. So that that's certainly keeping a lot of inventory off the market. And then at the same time, there's that lockout effect. If you're an aspiring home buyer, right, you're facing a significant uh, mortgage payment here with a seven percent rate still high um, house prices. So that's certainly curbing some of the, uh, the demand out there as well. Yeah. Hey, Merson, do you have a mortgage? I know that might be a personal question. I don't know. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. What's your mortgage rate? 2.8. 30 year fixed? Yeah. 2.8? Oh, yeah. wow. That's that's pretty good. Wow. Yeah, so, it is. <laughs> so uh, the current mortgage rate is 7%. I assume you have some interest rate lock in, uh, right? You wouldn't move. In, 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 no. You would not move because 2.8 I mean, to 7 is way too much. Right. And I couldn't. I, I really couldn't, even if I wanted to, because house prices where I live are so high now, mm. coupled with the mortgage rate. I, I would never be able to afford the house that I live in today if I were you know, looking now. I bought this house and- 20, well, I'm not in this house right now, uh, but t- 2017, right? So mm-hmm. the house the house value has almost doubled since I bought it. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I- Right. So there, it's almost put, like- there's, Staying put for the foreseeable future. There's no mortgage rate that it gets you to start thinking, oh, maybe I could move if I wanted to. I, I know you, you've, rent, you've recently renovated your home, so you were kind of making it- <laughs> That's right. Own. That's and what I did instead. Yeah. yeah, I did instead. Right. Yeah. But but if yeah. I said mortgage rates were six percent, uh, that's not going to move the dial here for you. No, because that's still way more, right? That's still yeah, basically double my double. current mortgage rate. Yeah. So and right. at a higher house price. Right. What about you, Chris? Do you, do you have a more? You can tell me, Mark. That's a personal question. You know, I'm not going to answer that question. I'll answer any question. I yeah, do okay. not have a mortgage. I paid it off. Uh, oh. Oh. Okay. Congratulations. Ago. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Um, I'm oh, in a so townhouse. It's not a very large house, so. Yeah. I was going to ask the same questions, but I, I guess I can't do that. <laughs> what mortgage? Well, I, I think you could. I mean, would would you move right now? Right now, so I'll tell you my story uh, briefly. I've, I've been, I had been looking for uh, another place, a larger place, for a while, and uh, right, this is even kind of maybe a, a year before the pandemic. Very limited inventory, and I just kind of gave up now because of the inventory. So yeah, the interest rate is certainly a deterrent, but it's more about the inventory. There's nothing mm. being available, and so I did the same thing. I I renovated. 
So now I, I really, I've stopped You're looking. comfortable. You're comfortable. comfortable. So yeah. at least for now, I have no real incentive to move. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, in our forecast, we have mortgage rates continuing to come in. Um, they peaked at 8% back. I, I don't know when that was, maybe six, nine months ago, we were as high as eight. And now we're down to seven, last I looked, uh, maybe a little higher given what's going on in the bond market. And we have, in the long run, uh, meaning abstracting from the vagaries of the business cycle and everything else, we have mortgage rates settling in somewhere between five and a half and 6%, which is, uh, that's going to take some time to get there uh, in part because of uh, well, maybe I should ask Chris, you know, that spread between mortgage rates and 10-year treasury yields uh, remains pretty wide. If we're at 7% on a fixed mortgage rate and the 10-year yield is at four and a quarter, that's an unusually wide spread. Uh, but we have that spread, that difference narrowing over time and the mortgage rates coming into about five and a half and 6%. You know, it would no. be, I think, instructive. Maybe you could explain you know, what's our think? Why is the spread so wide? Why are mortgage rates so high relative to 10-year treasury yields? And why do we think that spread's going to come in and we're going to sell in around five and a half and six? And you know, since I'm asking you so many questions, one more, why do we think five and a half, six percent is given what Marissa just said, you know, why is that going to be sufficient uh, to get, you know, to unlock housing and get more, uh, more housing transactions? That's a lot. Yeah. I know I asked a boatload yeah. of questions there, but all, all great questions. I, so I'll start with the spread itself. You're, you're right. The, the spread is is unusually wide. It's a bit less than it peaked. I think that we peaked out around over 300, 300. basis points. And I think we're, we're coming in a bit. But still, the historical uh, spread has been closer to, say, 175 uh, basis points, somewhere in, in around that range. So still, uh, that's a, a percentage point uh higher than what we would expect given the uh, that spread. So uh, why is that? Why do we have that higher spread? I think of three main reasons. One is just there's ongoing volatility in the interest rates uh, themselves, right? So you know, rates keep moving around. Uh, and if you're buying a uh, mortgage-backed security or if you're a lender uh, of, of, uh, of mortgages, then you have to take that into account in, in your pricing. That volatility, that uncertainty certainly induces a a premium here. Uh, second key factor is just the outlook, the expectations. If you if you believe our forecast or you have a forecast where rates are falling, even if it's uh, gradual, right? The uh, you would expect that there would be a lot of refinancing activity in the future for a mortgage that you issue today at seven percent. Clearly, a lot of buy, uh, borrowers are are banking on that. The ones who are mm -hmm. still in the market, they're buying. They're willing to accept this higher rate, but many of them are really counting on the fact that they'll be able to to refinance in the future. So that too has to affect the uh, the pricing of the mortgage, right? The uh, origination that you make today may not last that long. It's not going to go out for the ten or even thirty years. Um, so you have to uh, account for the fact that this might be a, a relatively short uh, duration uh, mortgage. Then the, the third factor I would say is is the demand for mortgage lending uh, that's that is uh, out there in terms of the Federal Reserve having been a large uh, buyer of mortgage backed securities during the pandemic and in their effort to keep rates uh, low, 
Uh, now they're no longer doing that. They're actually allowing uh, their their uh, holdings to to run off. They're running off at a slow rate because mortgage borrowers like Marissa have such low uh, low interest rates, so they're not they have no interest to to uh, certainly uh, sell and also to even uh, accelerate payments uh, at this point. So it's not a a very quick process, but point is that they the Fed is no longer that uh, that key buyer in the market mm-hmm. and given that hole that the, that exists you have to compensate or raise rates in order to attract other investors into those mortgage backed securities so i think those are kind of the, the main reasons i would i would cite for that increased spread over time i would expect that to to normalize right the for right about our economic forecast things get a little clearer uh, going forward, especially as the Fed does start to, to cut interest rates, bond traders should have a little bit more certainty in terms of the future. We should get uh, maybe some other uh, investors into the market to bid down uh, that spread as well. So I I do expect to see that that uh, spread come in and that we we will land at that, uh, what do we say, five and three quarters, six percent uh, long-term interest rate. Is that sufficient to really attract a lot of uh, buyers? I think that it, it'll be helpful, but it's not going to, I wouldn't expect that to create any type of uh, boom. I think what it will do is just get more and more um, supply into the uh, in, into the market. Given other life events, you'll see maybe uh, homeowners mm-hmm. rationalizing a bit that, okay, I'll have to give up maybe a 4%, 5% mortgage. I have to pay a little bit more, but I only live once. I'm willing to to stomach that that higher uh, interest rate, and I've perhaps I've made some great capital gains on the on my existing property, so that can offset it. So I, I think it helps to loosen the wheels, if you will, mm-hmm. of the uh, the market. But again, I don't expect that that would cause a that um, a reduction in that rate to six percent is going to cause a real boom in the, in the market. Yeah, I guess the other thing would be it's really uh, kind of people's expectations around rates. I mean, you know, the longer rates stay up where they are, I think people start adjusting upward where they think the, you know, kind of the rate is going to settle in long run. They're not going to sit around waiting for 2.8% for that's exactly not going to happen. I mean, some people might think that is going to happen because that was only two, three years ago, but another year or two of, Seven, six, seven percent mortgage rate. People say, "Oh, maybe we're not going back to two point eight. And then at that point, with life events, as you as you said, they, they begin to think, "Okay, maybe I, I, I just this isn't great. This is going to be costly, but I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go at five and a half or six percent." Yeah, um, you know. That was the other the factor is what happened. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that was the mortgage rate I had when I bought my first home in Philadelphia at ah. the peak. Yeah. Before the housing bust. Right. I really timed that great. It was like November 2005, I think. When you bought in Philadelphia? Yeah. Oh. Uh, but when did you sit? Did you, you, oh, I guess you sold like five years I, ago. I sold 10 years later for less than I bought it for. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, okay. But I'm not saying that was a good mortgage you. rate back there. Yeah. Right then, right? Yeah. Like five and a half percent was pretty good. So yeah. it is all what you're used to. What you're used to. <clears throat> yeah. I just think the there's there's another portion to the affordability piece. So I think it depends yeah. where in the country you are, right? So 
where I live in Southern California, it's extremely expensive. So the mortgage is not helpful when it's 7%. But even if we got back to two and a half percent, three percent mortgage rates, like I said, house price appreciation was just so bonkers during the pandemic that the house I live in now, which is small, is worth double what I bought it for. So I think it really depends on the market that you're in. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very, very true. The other, the, one of the interesting things, there's a lot of interesting things about the, the housing market, but one of the things I find fascinating is while existing home sales are very depressed, 4 million units annualized, new home sales, not so much. I mean, they're not booming, but you know, abstracting from the monthly vagaries of the data, feels like around 750,000 new home sales uh, annualized, which again, if I take a, put a, put a graph up of all the history and I take a step back and I look at it, 750K feels kind of sort of where it should be in the long run. Uh, and you know what's going on there? Why are new home sales holding up better than existing home sales? Uh, Marissa, do you have any sense of that? Or Chris is the housing maven. Should I throw it back to him? Do you have any sense of that? Marissa? Uh, why are, Why is that holding up? Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I don't, cool. I don't see, I haven't seen a new home go up around me in years. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, Chris, do you have a, a, a perspective on that? I mean, I've got a perspective, but uh, what's your perspective? Why are new home sales? First of all, did I characterize yeah. the data correctly? And second of all, if I did, what's going on? Yeah. I, I think the, uh, the simple answer is just the, the lack of supply on the existing home side pushes anybody who is uh, an active buyer uh, to consider uh, new housing. The other factor I'll throw in there is that the, because of that lack of supply in existing uh, homes, the price differential has been bit away. So the, the, mm-hmm. the new uh, homes actually are coming in or being mm-hmm. sold at prices that are very competitive to the existing market, right? which is extremely unusual. Mm-hmm. And so, if you yeah, if you're a buyer, you're facing this higher uh, mortgage rate anyway, right? Do you want to buy used or an existing versus a a new home? That new home, you know, maybe uh, quite compelling. So, I think that's uh, fueling some of that uh, underlying uh, uh, demand for for new homes as well. Yeah, I guess the way the other way to say what you just said is uh, builders are much more aggressive on pricing, right? They've been effectively cutting their price. Uh, they've been doing these interest rate buy, so-called interest rate buy downs. You know, essentially yeah. paying, allowing they're they're getting around, helping with the interest rate lock effects. They're saying, okay, to a buyer, uh, you don't need to pay seven. You you pay let's you pay four for the first year, and then you pay five for the second year. Then you get market rate for the third year, that kind of thing. So you're effectively buying down the interest rate, and which is effectively cutting price. Uh, and in fact, if you talk to a uh, a builder, uh, and I've talked to a few publicly CEOs of publicly traded builders, they'll tell you that they feel like they've effectively cut prices by about 10%. That That's the effective price cut that they... And that's that goes to your point, Chris, that new if you look at the median price or the average price on a new home, now very similar to an existing home, and that is very unusual. I mean, that may have happened once or twice in history other than the, the current point in time. So we're getting a lot more new home sales as as a result. Uh, okay, uh, that's demand. Uh, anything else on demand that I, you want to bring up? 
Can I ask a question about the new homes? What? Yeah. Predominantly, what kind of homes are being built? I mean, is it skewing more toward condo or single family? And what's what's the price point? Because I know, you know, when we would talk about this years ago, we were talking about a lot of high-end homes being not starter homes, right? More sort of move up McMansion type homes. So are we still seeing that kind of building or is it more entry level? Chris, you want to take it? Yeah, it's uh so single family, you know, is still the dominant uh, uh property type. That's still what people want. Single family detached is the is the gold standard, if you will. So that's still um an area, but that you do see builders being very uh creative and responding to the market by uh reducing uh floor plan size. So you're seeing that the average or median um square footage of homes is getting a it's a bit smaller. So they're re- responding to some of these uh, constraints on affordability, not only by cutting the rates, right, offering these buy downs, but also adjusting the floor plans to uh, build, put up more as, as many homes as they can to uh, satisfy uh, the demand that that's out there. So I, I think that uh, that's certainly a, a positive sign. It does vary across the country, so I don't want to generalize too much, yeah. but uh, yeah, I think I think uh, it's a a real testament to the flexibility that the builders have in trying to resolve this uh, housing deficit problem. Well, I think if you go back, you know, in the wake of the financial crisis and the years after most of the years, you know, through the, let's say through 2018, 19, that kind of, before the pandemic, uh, builders were focused mostly on high end housing. You know, uh, I mean, they had, uh, a lot there was a lot of demand. That's where the margins are wider. Their actually fixed costs of construction had risen during the pandemic in the wake of the pandemic, all the permitting costs and uh, zoning issues and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, but uh, in more recent years, they've uh, begun to move uh, because there's been more supply at the high end and the margins aren't quite as good. They've been moving down into the kind of more entry level. So some of the bigger, like a uh, like a, 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 a DHI, that's the uh, stock ticker for uh, uh, what is it? DH Horton? I can't, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, Horton. DH Horton. Yeah, they're the biggest. Pub- I think they're the biggest builder in the country. They now have you know uh, very extensive operations building kind of more, uh, say call it entry level or. Uh, 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 Home, new homes or kind of lo- lower price point homes. So that's it's changed, but it's only been recently. And this this now goes into uh, supply, uh, you know, the supply issues. And here uh, we've got a you know, despite the the ramp up in construction since the financial crisis, uh, we've got a very severe shortage of of homes, uh, right, Chris? We, what what are our and there's a lot of debate about this. Uh, in fact, it's you can talk to the realtors, you can talk to the builders, you can talk to the mortgage bankers association. Everyone's got their own estimate of the shortfall. Uh, what's the right uh, estimate of the shortfall, which means what is our estimate of the shortfall? Well, our estimate is around 1.7 million. Um, that's based on the uh, vacancy rates. So looking at today's vacancy rate, which is very low and calculating what we would need to add in order to get the vacancy rate up to a historical average and also accounting for um, what we call a pent up uh, household, household formations that didn't occur over the last few years because lack of affordable housing. So 
put those two together and yeah, 1.7 million is the number. Which is a big number, right? I mean- It's the, a huge number. Yeah. I mean, current single family, multifamily, last I look is, that's housing starts is I think 1.4 million, maybe 1.3. Yeah. 1.3, 1.4. Yeah, and then throw in another 100,000 per annum manufactured homes. That's another source yeah. of supply. Let's just say we're at 1.415 and under, and then shortfall is 1.7. That gives you a sense of magnitude, right? Um, I mean, yeah. uh, of the shortfall, it's a, it's a, it's more than a year's worth of, if, if, if you know, if, if, if the shortfall didn't increase at all, if there was no demand, uh, it would take over a year of supply to catch up, you know, given, you know, where we are with regard to the supply shortfall and the vacancy rate. Um, and uh, the, what is the underlying level of demand for new homes, Chris? Uh, for mean, new homes? Yeah. Oh, or are you saying total for no. new construction? Let's say I'm sorry, new construction. So, uh, so we have three components, right? We have the household formation demand from household formations, demand from second homes, and the demand from um, loss or obsolescence of homes and replacements. Right? Home gets lost in a natural disaster. We have to rebuild it. I think there's some debate around this at the moment, given our latest population uh, statistics, but. Uh, <laughs> I think we had been running at something closer to uh, 1.3, 1.4 uh, million. So a million from uh, household formations and then three, 400,000 from the combination of second homes and obsolescence. So so the, the, the amount of supply we need every year just to meet underlying demand for new homes is... Yeah, it's, in that... It's like 1.516, isn't it? Something like, yeah, in that range. Yeah, right. One five one six, and that's that probably underestimating things in the context of the demographics, right? Given the uh, immigration that's coming into the country, which yeah, we're not that, really. I, I don't think we're really because we're just still getting our minds around the magnitude of the Im, uh, immigration flows into the country. Our estimates of say one five one six underlying demand is probably significantly underestimating underlying demand. That'd be my sense of it. Yeah, I think that between immigration and also there's debate about that some of that pent up demand with uh, younger adults still living at home and how many of those would actually move out if they could. Um, so there might be even more uh, demand than what we're saying. Those that pen, those pent up for household formations may be even higher. So. Yeah, and uh, we're actually uh, working on uh, trying to revive. We're, this is a process, but we're think we're trying to think about how we should revise our estimates of uh, population growth, household formations, all the demographic variables, given what uh, appears to be a, a surge in immigration into the country. I mean, the, uh, and this is, this is not, 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 this has not been embedded in the census data. You know, census is kind of the keeper of the, of the data and they're not, they haven't uh, adjusted to this yet because they, you know, slow moving in terms of, you know, adopting, uh, uh, the data as it comes in. But if you look at a study, recent studies done by the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, the nonpartisan group that does the budgeting, they have to forecast the economy and therefore have to have some sense of the underlying demographics. They're estimating that foreign immigration into the country uh, in, uh, in 2023 was 3.3 million people on top of 2.6 million people in 2022. And this is just for context, and it's kind of a typical year before the surge in immigration. It's about a million per annum. So that's a that's a pretty big delta. That's not 
in our data. It's not in our fork. It's not in that 1.567 million per annum underlying demand. And that's, we're working to try to figure out how to incorporate that. Sounds like that's easy to do, but that's actually pretty hard to do. There's just so many different dimensions to that data and to figure out how immigration fits into that is, is difficult. So we're kind of working through that. Um, okay. Uh, so we've got this really severe shortage of single family housing. Uh, and I, I, clearly this has become top of mind. This feeds into the affordability crisis, right? Because there's no supply. And if there's no supply, that means higher house prices and you mix in the higher mortgage rates and people can't afford to buy a single family home. So this has now become a, you know, a very significant top of mind issue for people starting to play into the presidential election. It's a, it's an election issue. Uh, should policymakers do anything about this? So, you know, what, or what, and, or what should they do? Uh, you know, how should they respond? You got any views on that, Marissa? I, I think, I think you see it, an attempt to address this in a lot of places. Uh, all over the country. I mean, I know in here in California, um, just the the plight of homelessness has been top of mind to every policy discussion, every election, all over the state. And this goes this goes in part, in big part, to housing affordability, right? So you see it being addressed in Los Angeles, trying to build housing, trying to repurpose office buildings, hotels to house people. Um, there is a big proposition on the ballot here in California that we will vote on next month that will provide a lot of money to trying to address homelessness. And a big part of that is affordable housing. So um, I think, and you know, we will talk to Mark Calabria about housing policy. We've had other guests on here talking about housing policy. The, the kind of cool thing about this problem is that it's local. I think you can you can do things at the federal level to try to address it, but really when it comes down to it, it really is oftentimes has to be tackled at the local level. So we can have all these mini experiments going on all over the country and and try to see what works and what doesn't work in terms of addressing this, either from the, you know, uh, usually from the supply side, right? That's how they're going to try to address it, either by incenting builders and investors to get into the market to build more affordable housing, or by taking existing housing and trying to incent builders to do something with things that already exist. So I think it's, I think there's a lot of experimentation underway. I'm not sure um, you know, maybe you guys know if there's something out there that, at least at the local level, that looks to be successful so far. I think a lot of this is yet to be seen. Well, that's a hopeful uh, perspective on it. The other is because it's so local, it's very hard to address, right? I mean, what do you do at the federal level? That's address? right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. All right. I think it's very hard to address it at the federal level. I think I think most of it has to be done at the local level. You have you have zoning laws that differ widely, wildly across the country. Just the availability of land and space to build is hugely different. Like I said, I haven't seen a new house go up in my neighborhood, and I, I don't think I ever have. Right? There's just no room for it. So you either have to tear something down and rebuild it, or um, it has to be an existing home sale, but then you have other parts of the country where there's much more room to build and 
less restrictions on building. Um, well, in our conversation with Mark Calabria, again, uh, pointing to the uh, podcast that's the companion to this one, that uh, he, we talk about low the low-income housing tax credit, the LIHTC, mm-hmm. which is a tax subsidy to builders to get them to produce more affordable rental housing. Of course, you're not a fan of that. And I, I don't know that we need to go into that because we did to that to some degree in the other podcast. But, you know, if, if not that, then what? Uh, what, what, what should policymakers do? Or, uh, should they just throw up their hands? Or, I mean, what should they do? What do you think? The, the simple answer to this complicated issue is zoning, right? We need to change zoning laws. Right, that's the. Uh, but, but good the luck with that. I mean, come but on, that, that has that, to be done at the local level, right? That's got to be done at the local. Yeah. Well, local level. There are some states where you know, at the state level, they have uh, some control. I think what uh, Oregon and some other states have uh, instituted things at a at a higher level. But uh, yeah. but yeah, you're right. Uh, for the most part, they are lo- very much localized uh, decisions. Uh, it's not easy, but I, I think it. I think at the federal level, there are some carrots. That can be uh, dangled out in terms of uh, funding of uh, particular areas, making funding conditional on uh, changing zoning. They would call that a stick. They wouldn't call that a carrot. (laughs) You're not going to get transportation funding unless you change your zoning laws is what you're saying. Well, you will get transportation funding. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) If you you change your zoning laws. Right. Uh, okay, some carrots and sticks, but you're right. It's not. Uh, it's not easy. The light tech. I'm not. I'm not against it. I just don't know that it uh, really uh, helps to move the needle all that much. I think builders. If you if you gave builders the opportunity to build, you change the zoning so they don't. They're not restricted to build single family detached homes with large lots as they are in many parts of the country. They will be very creative and come up with the idea. They will fill in town holes. They they you know they can um, adjust their margin, adjust their construction to achieve their margins and maximize uh, the opportunity that is made available to them. But they're in many cases restricted by these regulations, right? And that forces them, that causes them to adopt incentives that uh, lead to you know misuse of some of the land i would i would argue so i think uh until we get some of those uh attitudinal changes we're going to it's going to be more piecemeal type of uh incremental uh, adjustment here versus some large sweeping federal law that suddenly mm-hmm. leads to a lot more housing yeah it feels like this is going to be a problem for a long time to come and it's getting given the numbers we just described it's it's not getting better it's getting worse right i mean We've got a 1.7 million shortfall where we need, you know, even not incorporating the new demographic data on immigration, we need 1.5, 1.6 million every year. And we're producing 1.4, 1.5 million. So, you know, vacancy rates are going to remain very low. Uh, rents and prices are going to remain very high, right? I mean, it's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, uh, the homelessness problems going to be very pernicious um uh, uh getting uh, new uh households into home ownership is going to be very difficult the home ownership rate is going to be under a lot of pressure it's going to be a feels like this is we're in we're in store for a pretty tough decade or two here in terms of the housing uh, issues 
Would you just yeah. agree with that? Uh, if you, yeah, if you, you look agree. ahead, if yeah. you look ahead 15, 20 years, things will change, right? The yeah. demographics are going to be very different. Um, That's a great point. That's a great point. Um, which also, you know, adds to some complication as well, right? Because if you're yeah. a builder with that right. longer vision, yeah. right, are you going to really ramp up all your activity today? If you know that the demographics are, you know, going to adjust in the long run. I think that's still far enough in a, away in the future. Probably. Right? Yeah, that you would. Probably, but um, but nonetheless, I think it's, it's something. It's kind of like you're in the fossil fuel industry, you're saying, you know, you know, demand is going to ultimately weaken do I really want to make those big investments stay in the fossil fuel industry? Though those investments, they're thirty-year, fifty-year investments, right? Yeah. It, yeah. But you're you make an interesting point, it, and the point just to make it clear to the listener is that demographic shift here, the population, pop, unless immigration really is changes to a significant degree, unless this surge we're seeing now is sustained for an extended period. Yeah. Barring that, you're saying a house, a population growth, household formation growth, this source of demand for new housing is going to weaken, meaningfully weaken, meaning we're going to need several hundred thousand homes, new homes a year, not 1.5 million new homes a year. And that's a, that's a very different kind of environment. Yeah. And this housing shortage will go away at that point. But that's that's a generation from now. You know? That's right. That's, that's right. A, that's literally a generation from now. Yeah, like tough that. to tell that to a young adult looking for yeah, a, yeah, right. for a home. Just be patient, right? right. Yeah, uh, I guess right. uh, one other thing that could be done at the federal level is we are lacking construction labor, which has been a hindrance to home building as well. So, immigration reform would potentially go a long way toward increasing the labor supply in that industry, which has been hampered ever since, really, since the financial crisis, right? Where um, a lot of labor left the country and never came back. So that's one thing that could be done at the federal level. It might be marginal, uh, you know, in terms of the the cost of building, but it is it is a factor that we keep hearing yeah. about. It keeps coming up when we when we ask home builders what's preventing them from meeting this demand that's out there, and that's one of the factors that always gets mentioned. Yeah, I, and I, I guess uh, uh, tariffs, right on. Um... Materials. Uh, Canadian lumber, mm -hmm. uh, right? That yeah. the builders always bitterly complain about that. Uh, and of course, you know, we're talking in this presidential election, uh, uh, President, former President Trump's talking about additional tariffs, uh, uh, you know. So anyway, uh, okay, let's turn to, so we talked about demand. We talked about supply. Let's talk about house prices. And timely, uh, we just, I think, released yesterday the Moody's Analytics repeat sales house price index. Is that right? Like, and the reason I know this is because Chris was sending me an email telling me my home in Vero is falling in value. That, that oh no, he, <laughs> would, I could feel the glee in his uh, somehow the <laughs> shot and frowd in his in his email to me. Uh, not not at all. Not, not at all. all. Okay. I, I know you just want to keep pointing track, it out. Just pointing. He takes it out. no pleasure in that. No pleasure. In it. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Particularly because the prices have risen so much. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so what did the, what did the um, MAHPI say? Uh, so it was positive over the month and certainly over over the year. So uh, from December to January, we're up 0.3 percent. Mm. Right. So a little bit of an acceleration was 0.2 percent the month before. And then year over year, it's 5.8% wow. uh, growth, which is, oh, boy. you know, it's still outstripping income, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So it still remains uh, very, very robust. The, uh, the growth is stronger at the lower end of the market, kind of consistent with everything we've said, uh, a bit weaker at the higher end, but still positive. And 
strong. So yeah. What does that yeah. look like regionally? Uh, regionally, well, Vero's down. Vero's down. We, we know that. that. We, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, some of the areas that, uh, were that experienced some of the greatest uh, appreciation parts of the South, parts of the West are, are, mm-hmm. uh, weaker in terms of their growth rate. Uh, I think there was only one, what there was one state where it was actually, it did turn negative. I think maybe Wyoming, but you have to be a little careful mm-hmm. with the, mm-hmm. some of the, the data, uh, number of transactions given the low volume, but, uh, but yeah, it, West and the South sees some of the some weakness. There's some growth still in the Midwest and the Northeast, right? There, where you do have metros that might be still providing more value on a on an absolute dollar basis. They're attractive, more attractive, I guess, to uh, aspiring home lot home buyers. But yeah, for yeah, the most I part, noticed, it's, a, it's you, an adjustment. You, you produce that nice map of all the metropolitan areas in the country, 400 plus, and you 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 show them. If they're dec- on a year-over-year basis, are prices declining? Are they up, you know, zero to five, five to ten, ten plus? And I did notice the, and of course, the red is the is a decline. I noticed Texas has a fair amount of uh, metropolitan areas with declines. Um, anything going on there, uh, or is that just the fact that they rose so much in value since the pandemic, and this is just a bit of a correction? Anything going on? I think that that's certainly part of it, just normalization, if you normalization. will. Normalization, um, but also the supply, right? So Texas is ah, some of those areas ah, are areas where you can build where the regulations yeah. aren't as strong. So you've actually seen, I think Austin um, had Come has way, had a bit of a building yeah. boom, and you've seen rents coming in, prices coming in as part of that. So yeah, Good. yeah. just goes the magic of supply. We just need supply, and we'll we'll get some affordability. Yeah. Interesting. Back to zoning. Yeah. Okay. So in our forecast, uh, where and I'll, I'll have to say we've been. I, I feel very proud of our forecasting prowess over the last year or two because uh, you know re- we never called for recession. We kind of avoided that pessimism. At least most of us did avoided that pessimism. But nonetheless. Uh, we have said some some forecast errors uh in the one error is around house prices uh we expected house prices to weaken meaningfully uh in the wake of the fed rate hikes back in 2022 and it, actually initially they did i mean back in 2022 prices declined as the fed jacked up interest rates but in 23 last year prices stabilized and by year's end were, were rising again and now coming into 2024 as you say they're they're rising up 5.8 percent i think this is a new record high in terms of existing yep. prices yep. we're at a new record high so where do we go from here you know what's our what's our outlook for house prices uh, going forward so and in the preface prefacing it by you know this is this is we haven't gotten this right so far you know particularly difficult but but, but what do we think is going to play out here in terms of prices going forward and yeah. why did you get it wrong? And why, why, yeah, why did we get it wrong? I'll let Chris answer that question. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Chris, Marissa. why did you get it wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I'll answer that question for uh, the extent of the lock in effect. It's uh, yeah. a lot stronger than uh, initially in, I uh, I expected. Uh, that plus the, um, the willingness of, you know, the affordability, even though it's record low, you know, it certainly is keeping a lot of uh, buyers out, but, 
home sale, thirty-two percent of home sales now are uh, all cash, right? So they're still is that right? Quite, I didn't that, know. That. Yeah, wow. That was in yesterday's report. So that would have been good. To, we're not playing a stats game, obviously, but that was a uh, that would have been a pretty good stat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you still have you know buyers out there that uh, have other means that are not dependent on the uh, on the mortgage rate. So it's the it's that combination of the, the lack of supply but still strong demand that you know led to the house price growth and what what I got wrong I guess in terms of the extent of that I was really right with I was you know I was there right with you I got I got it dead wrong uh but okay so yeah. going so short forward, term yeah what's going on short, what are we going short term expect still uh fairly solid growth here because of the supply demand uh imbalance but I do expect that we will get some uh, basically I, my forecast is fairly fairly flat that uh, you know we're just those uh, those forces of some increasing supply coming online, life events, some additional building, right, uh, are, is going to continue to put some downward pressure uh, on price, and the affordability continues to to be a factor, right? Uh, and the longer that uh, mortgage rates do remain at an elevated level, that's going to continue to make it difficult for some buyers. So I, I for that those reasons, I do expect that we'll see that push pull. In pricing over the next uh, year or so, but again, short term, I I don't see a a dramatic uh, decline anytime soon because because of the imbalance. So uh, prices are high, affordability is low. I mean, you look at price, the house prices relative to people's income, so household income, kind of a tried and true measure of valuation. It you, you would argue. Uh, the market's overvalued. Prices are really high relative to yeah. income compared to what's happened historically. And, um, you know, obviously uh, that goes to the affordability crisis. Uh, people then naturally ask the question, are we in a bubble? Because, you know, we have these valuation measures, house prices to income, house prices to rent. And if you look at, uh, look at them relative to long run trend, they would say the market is more overvalued today than it was prior to the financial crisis. And that, and that we consider to be a bubble. Would you consider what we're going, given that, what I just said, would you consider what's going on now a bubble? Well, I guess I would define a bubble uh, only by the fact that it pops. Right? So, um, if it, def uh, overvaluation that deflates gradually over time, I, I, which is the kind of the forecast we have here. Uh, I don't. I don't consider that a bubble, given the. the I guess a bubble is violent, in my opinion. That you'd have some yeah. event that really causes prices to to decline. Instead, I expect that we're going to normalize into uh, or come back to more of an equilibrium price to income ratio with flattening house prices, some growth in income, mortgage rates coming down. Right, so you kind of can adjust back into. Uh, this uh, this level of, of pricing, basically pricing got ahead of itself. It's going to take a little bit of time here for incomes to catch up uh, as prices go flat. Mercy, do you have a different answer? Uh, I, I think you need other characteristics. Like you need a lot of speculation over leverage. Right. You don't yeah. see that right now, right? I mean, this affordability. It's, things are extremely unaffordable. Um, but that is, as we discussed, an issue with, it's a supply issue. It's, it's just lack of inventory in the market that are keeping a floor under prices in a lot of these places. I don't see a lot of 
speculative buying and building going on? Yeah, I, in my view, a bubble is uh, speculation, meaning you've got investors in the market that are buying mm-hmm. with the sole intent of flipping that property quickly to make a buck. And they, if, if, to make, make it even more serious is if they're doing that with debt, with leverage. I mean, that's what was happening back in the in the in the bubble before the finance. That was a bubble because there was just a lot more investors that were flipping. You know, they were quickly buying. They they lied in many cases about the fact that they needed a mortgage, and they said they were a homeowner. They were buying it as homeowner, but they were actually an investor, and then taking that and and then moving on, selling and getting that profit. Uh, that in that that's that that kind of uh, speculation, uh, you know, uh, greater fools theory. I, I'm going to be able to find a greater fool than me to buy this property out before everything falls apart. You know, it was the crypto market, for example, uh, or the equity market back circa you know Y2K. That's that's a bubble. Mm-hmm. You don't see any of that now. Uh, I mean, the investors you see now, they're they're buying their hold, right? They're they're buying. And renting the property out because rents are so high, they're not buying with the intent of selling quickly or flipping. There's some of that in some markets. We actually track that. You know, we look at tra- actual transactions, and there was some of that creeping into places like Phoenix. You know, the really high flying markets. You know, back in the teeth of the pandemic, but you're not you're not seeing that now. So I, I this is in my view, the market is overvalued relative to incomes and rents. But we can explain it by what you just said. There's just no supply, you know, physical supply or because of the lock-in effects. It's not because of speculation. This this is not a bubble. This is not a bubble that uh, is going to burst. Um, okay. Uh, so I don't think Chris. I, I don't. I'd be. Of course, I was. I've been wrong about house price. I could be wrong again. But it'd be shocking to me if we saw some kind of violent, you know, move down in price. It just. If there's going to be weakness in price, it's going to be kind of a grinding down in price, you know, over time. As people, life happens, people put homes up on the, uh, for sale on the market and you, you start to see more inventory and, and, you know, you see some prices. To, to actually transact the price, sellers have to bring down their their their, their price a little bit and you see some grinding down our price. But I, I'd be shocked if we saw some big moves. Unless we had a recession, that might be different. Well, that's, uh, I was going to go there, a provocative question, even if we have a recession. Yeah, exactly. Would you expect to see prices I don't know. fall I don't know. dramatically? Right? Because in that case, then mortgage rates are coming in, right? Right, And the people who have jobs saying, oh my gosh, here's yeah. my here's my window. I'm, I'm going to walk through it. So I'm not even sure. You're right. I'm yeah. not even sure that would happen. Yeah, I, I think it depends on how severe the recession is, but you're right. It does, but- I think a key differentiator this time is the leverage piece that you mentioned. Yes, yeah. There's a lot less leverage today. So even if we have a recession, it's not going to be as uh, right uh, damaging for a lot of borrowers. Like they could hang on, especially with a low lower yeah. interest rate. So yeah, and that's maybe where we end the conversation on, in terms of uh, uh, we've been talking about housing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, quickly mortgages and mortgage mortgage credit quality. I mean, delinquency default rates on mortgages have been very, very low. And that in part goes to the low unemployment, but also goes to the fact that this run up in house prices. I mean, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but in in our in our house price index, it's up almost 50% uh, since the 
start of the pandemic. So if you go back, this pandemic was four years ago on the nose. You go back four years ago, look at house prices in that four-year period, up 50%, 5-0. That is a, a lot of equity that's been built up in people's homes. And people are not going to default on their home if they've got equity in it, right? Because they can just turn around and they sell it. So feels like, correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like uh, mortgage credit quality under almost any scenario here is going to remain very good. Anybody, anybody disagree with that? No. Overall, no. overall, you can find some pockets, but uh, yeah, yeah, and also, I, think, I guess you can see the home equity lending has picked up for obvious reasons. The equity and the high cost of credit card debt, and people need the cash. So maybe we see some weakening in credit quality for home equity lending, second mortgages. But I'd be surprised on first. Marissa, I, I interrupted you. I was just going to say, unless you bought a house in the last two years, right, where we have seen a deterioration in credit quality for very recently originated loans, mm. both personal loans, credit cards, even mortgages, there's some evidence of that. But the vast majority of people, if you bought a house before the pandemic or even in 2020, mortgage credit quality is good. And, and they have so much equity that even if house prices, even if house prices fell 20%, most people would still be sitting pretty. Yeah. So you're right. Like in contrast to 2007, 2008, where equity was just being wiped out. So people were walking away. This is a very different situation. You'd have to have some catastrophic decline in home values um, for for that, uh, for another foreclosure crisis to happen. Yeah. Even well, about two years. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, and then on top of that, the, you mentioned foreclosure. Are we ever going to have another foreclosure crisis? It seems like we're just credit quality pull out the moratorium just... playbook. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a good point. Yeah, push right. It out. right. That. Right. Are you saying that that uh, uh, the GSEs, FHF, Fannie, Freddie, FHA, they're they're never going to allow? If, mm. if people start getting in trouble, they're going to come up with mitigation and uh, uh, different methods to try to keep people out of the foreclosure losing their home in foreclosure. It's just not going to happen again. That seems uh, to of be course, the underlying mortgages are a lot better too than, you yeah. know, yeah, you've got 30 year fixed rate, unlikely you're, they're not two year subprime arm. So like before the financial crisis. So, but, but you're saying even if we, people started getting into trouble, it, they may not ever get to a actual foreclosure sale, at least not to the degree that has been historically because policymakers just won't allow that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, in the other podcast with uh, yeah. Mark Labra, the, yeah. Yeah, you can yeah. explain some of the, the details there. Well, that's a good way to end this podcast. Uh, so you can listen to this one and then go off and listen to the one we did with uh, with uh, Mark, uh, which I think was uh, you know very informative, uh, both uh, his, uh, historical recounting, but also looking forward. And uh, anything else on housing we want to bring up? I thought that was pretty comprehensive. Anything else you want to bring up before we go? Other than my home in Vero, I'm quite com I, I forecast many things. Some I'm confident in, some not so much. I'm pretty confident this home's going to be, uh, well, maybe not as confident now that I think about it. I was going to say I'm confident it's going to be worth more 10 years from now. Yeah, mm. <laughs> Climate is changing I fast, know, that's Mark. That entered into my mind. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. You got rid of the seaweed problem, though, right? That's... We got, yeah, no seaweed. So that's, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thanks for the conversation. And uh, we're going to call this a, a podcast. Uh, dear listener, we'll talk to you next week. Take care now. <laughs>